Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and this month we're a little bit late with the October primary survey podcast and that's because we've been incredibly busy. Rick Boddy, who usually does the podcast with me and myself, we were out in Vienna at the European Society of Emergency Medicine. That's a great conference. It was a great setting. We met some fantastic people and learned quite a lot. But it has meant that we've been a little bit on the busy side. This month, the primary survey is by our own Ellen Weber, the senior editor of the EMJ. And there's actually quite a lot in the journal this week. But there's some really interesting things. Well, I'm slightly biased because one of the papers that's been chosen as the editorial choice of the month, it's open access and it's the one that Ellen has highlighted as a, a particularly interesting, is a paper that we put together looking at the number of female speakers at conferences. And this came up when we were in USEM, the number of female speakers at the conference was questioned and also the number of keynotes as well. Now it's interesting because gender has been an issue in conferences across all sorts of different specialities. This has come up in physics, it's come up in biochemistry, it's come up in the humanities, it's all over the place and we do seem to see this issue that on the stage at most conferences there's predominantly men. I think perhaps the most the challenging one I heard about was a debate on women in medicine by a panel which was all entirely men. Not saying that's wrong. No, I am saying that's wrong. It is a bit weird, isn't it? Anyway, what we did in the paper was look at EM conferences around the world. So we took the big ones like ARCHEM, USEM, ASEP, and we decided to find out how many women were speaking. And I'll bring to the conclusions essentially what we found looking at this is that there are fewer women speaking at conferences but interestingly if you compare that with the number of women who are in the specialty as accredited specialists by nation it's probably not that far away. Now Dara Cass has done an excellent editorial on this looking at why these situations arise and why we might not get women on the stage as often as we should and also why they seem to speak less and although it's not in this paper, my impression that we don't get them as keynote speakers. That also links into a project over in the US, which I'd like you to go and have a look at. It's the Feminem project, the Feminem website. And you can look at how they're advocating and supporting and training other female speakers to get involved because we need to hear your voice on the stage at all conferences. So I'd really like to have a look at that. But of course, I am slightly biased because I was one of the authors on that paper. The second paper Ellen's asked us to have a look at this week is back on the PERC rule. So I love the PERC rule. Um, it's a fantastic way of ruling out, possibly, patients with pulmonary embolus in the emergency department. And the great advantage of the PERC rule is it uses a number of questions. It doesn't inquire tests. And in the original study, certainly you get the sensitivity of around about 98%, which is probably as good as you want for ruling out PE. Lots of reasons why that is. I'm not going to go into them now. But essentially, you don't want to over-investigate people because then you start getting harm from the investigations themselves and subsequent therapy. So one of the issues with the PERC rule, which the study this month has challenged, and this is a study by Thierniessen, I apologise if I've pronounced that incorrectly, um, and colleagues in the Netherlands, is that the PERC rule relies on you having a low probability before you actually use it. So it was originally designed to be used by experienced physicians who had a pre-test 
gestalt that this patient was low risk. And you can put that in numbers and say, well, about 15%, you want it low. And one of the questions that's been asked, and certainly in my practice in the UK, when I have very junior doctors saying, I've perked rule this patient and they're negative, I go, well, you know, how many P's have you seen? And they go, two. I go, well, I'm not entirely sure you're the most experienced person in the world. Perhaps this rule isn't for you. So what these guys did, and I think it's quite an interesting approach, is they used another score to identify a low-risk group. So they, they these patients through a well score and then applied the PERC rule on top of that. And that's quite an interesting approach. So this was a retrospective study, and it was patients who underwent CT scan for PE. And they calculated the Wells score, and if they had a Wells of, of two or less, they then put them through the PERC rule. And of their group, 78 patients had a Wells um, of two or less, and within that group, two patients had a subsegmental PE, question about whether or not we need to do too much about those and that gave them an overall sensitivity of that approach of about 89%. Now that's quite good it suggests that you could use this approach it's not a bad sensitivity although the numbers are quite low so the confidence intervals are quite wide and of course this is a retrospective study so using the well score and calculating the well score based upon data in the notes may have got it wrong. Having said that I think this is an interesting approach. Oddly enough it's, an, it's a slightly different approach to the one that I've seen described by other people in social media. So people like um, ourselves, and I think Scott Weingart did this as well on the MCRIP podcast, about using the PERC rule first. And then if the PERC rule is negative, you can go home. And if the PERC rule is positive, you then apply Wells with D-dimer to identify another low-risk group. So the order of these two tests is certainly up for debate out there. Now back to USEM, there were some great talks at USEM on PE and all sorts of other things really. But one of the nice quotes that came out from this is that if you do apply one of these tests, you know, if you apply something like a PERC rule and the patient is negative, and then you go on to do further testing, then the question and the quote was, are you really testing the patient or are you just trying to reassure yourself? So we haven't quite got an idea of exactly what we want to do here, but if you're thinking about using PERC rule or Wells D-dimer in your department, you want to get a bit more efficient, I would have a look at this paper and see if it's something you can fit into your practice. Another paper which Ellen has identified for us this month is looking at triage tools. So one of the defining processes of an ED, um, as opposed to say outpatients or, or primary care, is that we triage patients. We try and get to see them in the order of acuity, not just the order that they arrived in. In areas where EM is still developing, you, you often have a lack of skilled staff and training opportunities, and that presents a challenging to getting a triage system up and running. I mean, in Manchester, we use the Manchester triage score and there are other ones around the world, but it is a problem. So there's a system looked at in the journal this month. It's called 1-2 Triage, or OTT, and it's specifically designed for low-resource settings. And this by Khan et al. looks that we, we've actually got quite a lot to learn from newly developing systems. The principle of 1-2 triage is simple. You identify patients that are critically ill and get them seen. Importantly, recognise that critically ill in OTT requires at most a pulse oximeter. And then you sort the urgent from the non-urgent with more specific algorithms. They've tested it in a place where it would be used, so three Cambodian EDs, and they found it to be reliable and valid compared with physician-rated acuity. So that's a reasonable gold standard. It's pretty simple and Interestingly, it still performs similarly to the Emergency Severity Index, which is the most commonly triage used system in the US. And it actually outperformed that for the critically ill patients. So another example of why we should not just look to high income economies to learn interesting things about emergency medicine.
And then lastly, the reader's choice this month is looking at saving the lives of the critical and injured and the confusing and dis distressing dilemma of how we treat patients with life-limiting illnesses who are brought to the ED for resuscitation. And again, I see this as a theme in a lot of conferences I've been to recently that we really need to think hard about how we manage death, dying and terminal illness in the emergency department. So there's a good paper here looking at the real difficulty of being a paramedic called to a nursing home to transport a patient at the end of their life, knowing that the trip to the ED may not be in the patient's goals of care or best interest. And I'm sure we've all been in similar situations. So this is a qualitative study by Murphy, Jones and Timmons. It's very interesting. And they look at how paramedics describe the difficulty in understanding the wish of the patients, trying to do the best thing and also dealing with those conflicting pressures from staff or family. I think you'll have experienced that as well. Um, they're probably shared by many of us working in EDs. And it's a, another question, another plea, really, to make us think harder about clearer statements of care goals and more training for a lot of people in this challenging area, particularly in high-level economies where the, the populations are ageing and it's becoming more and more difficult to deal with an elderly population with life-limiting illnesses who turn up in the ED, perhaps not, in a planned way. So have a think about that and do read the rest of the EMJ. There's a load of other interesting papers out there. If you see me, if you see Ellen, if you see any of the other editors of the Emergency Medicine Journal at any of the conferences, please come up and say hello. And also, I would like to point out that we've appointed two new social media editors, Chris and Robert, and you'll be hearing more from them on the blog. Please have a look at the blog, more on the podcast and more in the journal. So great things happening here at EMJ. Have fun, enjoy your emergency medicine, come back and listen soon.